HVAC 360, episode number 75. My interview with Scott Bowman. everybody to another episode of HVAC 360. I'm your host, Matt Nelson, as usual, back behind the microphone. Um, this week, uh, we're going to do a uh, another interview with an uh, uh, industry icon. I, uh, you know, somebody who, you know, who's been around for quite a while that I, I just like to talk to uh, people like this and, and, and pick their brains and, and get their perspective on the industry. Um, you know, we, we got about a running time of about a hundred, uh, hour and 15 minutes, but you know, it, it's, it's really good stuff. So, uh, stick through it. Um, a couple of things that really struck, uh, me as far as, um, uh, you know, my interest in, um, Scott, um, he spent 25 years working for KJWW. Now, uh, if you know anything about anything, um, KJWW is, is one of those firms. It's a, it's a large, uh, engineering firm um, and very well respected in the industry. So I knew that, you know, obviously a principal at KGWW wanted to pick his brain about, um, you know, a bunch of different stuff. And now that I see that he's retired, um, I think he'd, he'd have a, a little extra time, but um, not as much as he'd probably like. He's starting something new uh, and uh, it's the uh, integrated des- integrated design and energy advisors. Uh, I like the acronym ID, ID plus EA. It's kind of like idea. Um, so I know he's right now he's working through some of the branding of that, but I wanted to get in touch with him and talk to him a little bit about his background, um, pick his brain about you know sustainability and commissioning uh, and things like that. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's just cut to the tape. All right. Today we were talking with Scott Bowman, who is the owner of Integrated Design and Energy Advisors, uh, newly formed. He used to, he was just retired from KJWW. Uh, how are you doing this morning, Scott? Great. Fantastic. So one of my favorite questions I like to ask engineers is what was it about engineering that really, you know, wanted you, wanted to make you become an engineer? Sure. Uh, you know, it really goes back to my father. Uh, my father is a professional engineer. Uh, he was, he's actually an architectural engineer and practiced in a small firm up in Mason City, Iowa. So very, very early on, I was exposed to the built environment. You know, we didn't call it that back then, but that's, that's what we call it now. And really, from that point, I knew I wanted to be uh, involved. And initially, I probably thought a little more about architecture, but really, I didn't think I had enough art uh, or that uh, that creativity uh, that architects need. And so I really started to focus on the consulting that would go on with buildings. And uh, really, since I was more focused on cars and mechanics and different um, aspects like that. We were into sports car and racing and, and a bunch of different things um, that really kind of sent me towards mechanical. Plus it's such a broad major. It would, it allows you to do just about anything. So, so really that's where I started probably since I was 10 years old, I knew I was going to be an engineer and uh, well, I probably didn't know what uh, 
HVAC was at the time. I certainly knew what mechanical was, and I was going to be one. So that was that was pretty pretty laser focused. There wasn't a lot of variation, like you wanted to be, you know, a, a fireman or a policeman or something like that. Uh, no, you know, really, never, never even thought about that. Uh, you know, I probably thought a little bit about going into cars, um, but you know, when you're in Iowa and you're in uh, Mason City, Northern Iowa, you don't really necessarily think that's an option. And plus you think about, you know, getting pretty close to 40 years ago, uh, people weren't moving around there as much back then. Uh, so you didn't necessarily think that your future was in Detroit, Michigan or someplace else or that type of thing. So you thought a little more regionally back then. Uh, it, it, so anyway, that's really where I probably started to focus on what, what mechanical was and you know, what was happening in, uh, in buildings. So uh, I guess how, how did it be, you know, how did it uh, evolve to focus specifically on the built environment? What, at what point in time did you say, you know what, not only am I just going to be a mechanical engineer, but I'm going to focus specifically on, you know, HVAC and buildings. It, it really probably happened uh, first with the idea. Well, first, we lived in what I would have called a California modern home in the middle of uh, Mason City, which is very, very unusual. Uh, it had a flat roof. You know, nobody had flat roofs uh, in the town or in a residential area. And so right from the beginning, I was very interested in kind of a, a different view, uh, a more organic view of architecture. And, and obviously, I was a fan of Frank Lloyd Wright uh, as, a, as an architect, not necessarily as a person, but it, to see the kinds of things that could happen. So when, and also, you know, we were getting into the 70s at that point with some major energy issues and the passive house, um, the solar house, those types of things were really just um, kind of exploding uh, in the United States. And so I was really getting into that kind of idea. So that really kind of started to push me towards energy, uh, which pushed me towards the idea of HVAC and heating, cooling, and those kinds of issues. So that probably happened, you know, late high school. Um, into community college. I really didn't have uh, enough money to go right to um, Iowa State uh, University. I needed to, to save some money and work, so I worked pretty much uh, 40 hours uh, a week and then went to community college for the first two years to get you know all those foundational uh, classes out of the way, math and science and some of those kinds of things. So, it, And even then, I actually... Uh, had an interesting uh, job with what was called Coltec Industries at the time, and it was an intensifying uh, solar collector company. And the whole company was maybe worth a couple million dollars at the time, and we were going up against and, and outperforming people like GE uh, with their intensifying parabolic concentrating solar collectors. And they had spent $5 million to just get onto a test stand at Sandia. So... It, so very early on, I was interested in energy and conservation and um, alternate uh, renewable energy and that type of thing. Uh, and you know, if that, you know, if natural gas hadn't tanked, uh, you 
in the late 70s, who knows, my career might have been very different. I would have been involved much, much more in active solar. But the company, as many, many solar companies did in the late 70s, went out of business. And so a very, very good idea never got any traction going forward. And it was kind of fun as I retired and I was packing things up. I found a whole bunch of my stuff from back then. So uh, it, it, that, that was kind of fun to uh, reminisce back to those days. I can imagine. Um, you know, that's, that's, that, that's pretty, some, some pretty exciting stuff. Um, you know, I, it, it's funny because, uh, you know, when I think about uh, education and, you know, how education is getting so now uh, so much more expensive nowadays, and even thinking back about you know my career and, and and where I went to school, I think you know your example of of going to community college, get those you know foundational credits, um, you know really is 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 going to be more of the you know way to do things in the future, um, you know with uh, people going forward. You know, I, I serve in a lot of, uh, I'm still very, very involved up at Iowa State and, and, and serve on a couple of advisory boards. And one of them is for uh, the mechanical engineering department. It's called the uh, Industrial Advisory Council. And it, it, we are focusing and the department is focusing and Iowa State is focusing on engaging community colleges. And it, I think it's really for two reasons. One is that obviously that is, you know, revenue. And, you know, any university is looking for uh, increasing their students and wanting them to get more involved. And frankly, students that have gone to a community college uh, are pretty damn serious. Uh, they really look at what they're doing and they really have a, a plan in place. So already our state has several collaborations with different community colleges uh, that allow them to get kind of kind of a degree. I never really did get a degree from my community college because it was really a handshake with Iowa State so that I could just really seamlessly walk from the community college into uh, even then, you know, uh, too many years ago. But it, it was very intentional, uh, the connection between the two. Mm -hmm. And so it really allowed me to succeed. And so I think you're going to see the universities... Um, and I think the big hope now is maybe some of those might go into graduate school uh, and start to be, you know, that next class of instructor that uh, and professor that can do the research and that type of thing. So, um, no, it is a big area now, and I think it is something that just about any institution is going to try and create that collaboration and that connection. So I, I guess, um, you know, that... Yeah, you know, we we talked about um, your you know, your father being an influence uh, to you. Um, obviously, being involved with the, the you know the parabolic uh, solar. Uh, what are some of the other big influences in your career to really kind of you know that you've kind of can look back on hindsight and say, hey, you know what, you know if, if these couple of things didn't happen, um, you know I might not be where I am. That's an interesting question. Um... I would say that uh, I, I've always had a good ability to communicate, uh, and I knew I needed to be able to do that. Uh, you can never really convince somebody to spend millions of dollars like we have to do every day without having a little bit of confidence 
in what our decisions are and what our recommendations are, but also to be able to communicate with them on a level that meets their position, where they're coming from. You know, an accountant's going to view things differently than a school administrator, than a a CEO or a CFO. So uh, I took every writing course I could take at Iowa State. In fact, I I think I graduated with an extra 30-some credit hours because I knew that I needed those skill sets, even though they didn't really apply to my uh, degree. Uh, And so I think that maybe the idea that uh, knowing that I needed to be able to communicate well and, and present myself well and be able to explain these very complex technical uh, issues to clients. And and then really, I probably learned that more from my dad and and his trials and tribulations uh, uh, through his work that I knew that that was going to be an important part. And maybe a little bit of complaining he was making about the engineers that he was working with at the time, that uh, they couldn't communicate well and or would write letters that just spent more time talking about how, how... Big a problem it was, and how much they're solving it, instead of exactly what explaining what it was going to be. So, I think that was probably a pretty big influence. Um, the other one was uh, getting uh, hooked up with a company like KJWW uh, at a part or a time in my career right after I got my PE, uh, and we started to do some fairly large work, and that started to expose me to some uh, what I lovingly call capital A architects. Uh, the, the major players in, in the country and the world, and over that time and career, and then you know having a father that's a pseudo pseudo architect has made me much more sympathetic. Uh, plus, my own uh, kind of playing with the idea of being an architect has made me much more sympathetic to architects. Maybe a little more understanding. Uh, maybe a little more open to. Uh, what their concepts are and what their ideas are. Uh, I do, I kind of go back to, I tell a story. Um, I'm old, so I get to tell lots of stories. Uh, one of them is a, a colleague to this day, and I credit him with making my life hell as a young engineer. Uh, we did a project at University of Iowa, and it was horrible. I mean, he was making me do stuff that I just, it was stuff that I didn't think would really fit. I, I was worried about whether it would work and duct work and getting everything fit through. And, you know, at that time, we didn't have the same visualization tools that we have today. And so, you know, it wasn't until the jipboard uh, ceiling started to go in and some of the features and fittings that were uh, part of uh, what this particular architect's vision was that I understood, and all of a sudden, I just remember, you know, hard hat on my head, standing in the middle of this room saying, oh, this is what he's after. This is pretty cool. And from that point on, I use that as an example to young engineers to say, you know, sometimes you've got to trust the vision and work with that vision because they are art majors. Uh, You know, we're bachelors of science, so sometimes that makes us uh, put some blinders on that uh, does set up this creative tension between us and architects. But sometimes, you know what, they know what they're doing. And they do have something that's going to end up uh, very attractive, uh, very moving, whatever it might be the emotion they're trying to invoke. So uh, I think meeting him 
and working with him, uh, even working with him to this day, we laugh about that and, and we have a good time. And, um, and maybe he doesn't make my life hell anymore because I understand where he's coming from. So we don't, you know, it doesn't uh, work into that same kind of relationship. So I think maybe getting that lesson early in my career uh, really helped me work with some pretty influential architects over the years. That's, uh, you know, I mean, it's that's so important, uh, you know, it, being able to communicate like we're talking about. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I get examples of, you know, when either, you know, an engineer can't communicate because they don't have the verbal skills or they have like a strong ego um, that, you know, it's like, you know, it's my way or the highway. They're very kind of uh, rigid. And that, you know, obviously that happens, too, on the architectural side where they can't communicate and, you know, it's not it's not like we don't, you know, engineers don't appreciate art or you know, engineers can't exactly. understand. It's just, OK, communicate it in, in such a way or maybe kind of, you know, go through it uh, you know, a couple of times and just kind of. have. And, and again, exactly. And I think it's the idea of being able to understand what people's motivations are. Uh, so getting an architect to further explain what their goals are and how they're getting there, A, that just builds up uh, more of a collaborative spirit anyway so that you're showing interest in what they're doing and what their uh, thought process is. And, and the other side of it is then hopefully they're a little more open to listening to you. What are the challenges that they're placing in front of you? And is there a middle road that still gets... Um, both of our goals or both of the things that we'd like to get enacted in that particular situation. So, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, and that's, I really encourage young engineers when they're working with young architects that, you know what, someday you're both going to be principals and you need to work out these relationships now and it will really serve you well later in your career. So don't start, you know, kind of fighting back or getting, you know, too upset, uh, maybe it's time to go have a beer with that person and see what he or she is really thinking and what's a motivator for them. And that could help you in dealing with them and coming up with the better solutions. Absolutely. Now, your work at KJWW, you had 25 years there, which, you know, I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's almost, you know, uh, you know, I know, um, you know, different people who've spent, you know, a considerable length of time at, at one place. Um, but a couple of, I mean, does that, that doesn't even happen anymore, 25 years at a, at a, at a singular location, at least not, not very frequently. I mean, that might be in the, the 5% um, of, you know, the engineering community. There's a lot of movement for, you know, upward growth. Um is that something that, that you're seeing? I mean, you know, obviously you're towards the tail end of uh, your, your stint there at KJWW. Was there a lot of movement uh, from engineers or was, you know, did KJWW find a way to um, be able to maintain and hold on to, uh, you know, quality engineers? Uh, another good question. Uh, I think some of it's very generational. Uh, I, I am the baby boomer era. Uh, so we tend to be more into security and into staying at locations or firms or companies for a longer period of time. Um, but I think that 
AJ, its initial growth, and I joined them when they were maybe 40, maybe right around there, and and opened the first branch office for them uh, from remote from the home office. And then, you know, at our peak, we were going over 450 or 500 uh, at the peak for 08. Um, That growth was fueled by an awful lot of people that found a home and would stay, uh, and, and these became the leaders that are leading today. But I definitely have noticed in the last, oh, probably 10 years uh, that the engineering workforce is much more mobile um, for many different reasons. Uh, some have, uh, you know, gone outside to find whatever lifestyle they thought, and then all of a sudden they remembered, you know, Iowa isn't too bad a place to raise a family, and so they come back. Um, and the reverse was happening to us. We were that attractor. They'd come to work for us and then think, you know what, family's back in Dakota or uh, Illinois or Michigan or someplace, and then they, uh, so they have a good long career with us, but then move back for those kinds of reasons. So, uh I think that that was kind of in the middle, and then now I'm seeing just what you said, that uh, people tend to move much more, and it is a difficult issue uh, that probably, you know, those people that are moving up and becoming principals now are going to have to wrestle with is how do you make sure that you can attract people, and money isn't always the motivator. Uh, It's probably certainly a component of that motivation, but giving challenging projects, giving challenging or supporting them, having a good education program, good mentorship, all those different aspects that we need to do. Uh, So I'm I'm hopeful that that trend at least doesn't get worse, but we're definitely seeing that in KJ as well. Now, I guess what, you know, 25 years at KJWW, taking it from what I'm kind of a guessing is is you've said a 40 person firm which is kind of more of a uh, a local regional firm uh into a international firm and that was uh, through the growth of uh, some partnerships with architects and different larger projects is that definitely definitely uh and then becoming having the horsepower to be the uh the local for some of the the large projects uh you know I was involved in the first project the KJ did that went over a million dollars in fee and uh, th- that's both scary and, uh, you know, invigorating because, uh, you know, at any given time, I think we had 45 or 50 engineers working on that project. Um, you know, so that's a lot of horsepower that's um, dedicated to one project, and yet it was a very successful project, and it went well, and it uh, helped solidify an awful lot of the ability of different offices to work together. And and kind of proved the concept. And, and then we started opening offices. Almost all of our offices have been organic. Uh, they've been somebody like myself that we hire that then grows that local office or uh, somebody moves to an area. We had uh, you know, one of our offices in Madison, which basically one of our key project managers deciding he wanted to move home. And uh, we said, well, we don't want to lose you, so let's start an office. And, you know, so we've done those kinds of things, um, or that there is an opportunity. Uh, in the last 15 years or so, we've done a few acquisitions with uh, varying uh, success. 
uh, although they've all obviously settled into successful. Uh, but I think we've kind of learned how to do that. And the latest acquisition was a firm in Indianapolis, and, and that transition has probably been the smoothest uh, and, and most productive for both both companies. So I think we've kind of learned how to do that uh, and, and been able to move forward. So, you know, really our growth has probably been 70% organic and 30% acquisition, which is a little up different than a lot of firms uh, that, that, that do that. And also, we kind of went international in a different way than most. Uh, we weren't following. In some ways, we were leading. Uh, we, we wanted to get some of the economics of uh, time, and so we engaged with a firm in China, and uh, they were doing CAD for us and, and integrating. And then we uh, opened uh, an office in India that was primarily a production office, but uh, was integrated and is actually uh, a member of KJWW, uh, which again, for a kid from Northern Iowa, that at, at that point in my career, I could punch four digits on my phone and connect to India has just been uh, <laughs> incredible. Uh, it, 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 and, and they're very entrepreneurial, very uh, team oriented, and uh, we have people integrated uh, from India in every single team. And group at, at KJ, so it really gives us the ability to do 24/7 uh, engineering, which is much more uh, the benefit than any kind of financial uh, cost benefit. Um, so, it, it, again, most firms kind of get grow by organic uh, or by uh, acquisition, and we've tried to do much more with the organic, and then to branch out when we have those opportunities. So. Um, it has been very interesting, very exciting. Uh, I was involved in both uh, establishing the uh, collaboration with China and the office in India. And so, again, a kid from Northern Iowa being able to travel around the world like I've done uh, is, is really something that I I think that the new generations take that a little for granted. Uh, they're just much more mobile and they can get around the world much more than we could back then. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what, uh, you know, from your time at, at, at KJ, what, what were some of the memorable jobs that you had? Was there any, any ones in particular that were, uh, that, that, that pop into my, your mind that were your favorites? Sure. Um, very early on, uh, when we opened the Des Moines office, uh, we had an opportunity to, uh, do a basketball arena for Drake University, uh, and, it was one of those jobs that probably uh, I shouldn't have done in the Des Moines office. We should have farmed it off to uh, the, the Quad Cities, the home office. But darn it, I wanted to do it. And, you know, we had a fairly small crew. It was a fairly large project. And uh, we had a great relationship with the client and the facilities manager. And it, it just about killed us, you know, lots and lots of overtime. And, lots of effort expended, but it, it turned into a very, very good project. It's used to this day. It's aged well, I think, both from its architecture, uh, from the, the, the firm that designed it uh, here in Des Moines, and, and frankly, the systems are still operating well, and, uh, you know, I get a chance to talk. They're still a client of ours. Uh, you know, they aren't building quite as much, but they're about going into a, another flurry of construction, so uh, KJ is going to be involved in some of this new construction. Uh, And, you know, one of the thresholds of any career is when you start adding on to your own work, we 
we were adding on to that project as I retired. So uh, I get a lot of people coming in, you know, asking me questions about a project I did uh, too many years ago. So it, 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 that, that project was fun for lots of reasons, made a lot of um, collaborations that, that go to this day and people that I stay in contact with and I have worked on a regular basis ever since. Um, another one was this first project. We did a meatpacking plant in Milan, Missouri, um, which I know way too much how our pork gets on our plate. Uh, <laughs> but, but it was an incredible opportunity, uh, and I ran that project, and we had um, basically at that time, I think we had the three offices, and I think Madison was open, and we had people in every single office working on that project because they went from basically concept to killing the first hog in 11 months. And we did kind of joke at the end, although it wasn't as much of a joke as we wanted to, that that first hog would be killed in 11 months, but it'd be with a shotgun. <laughs> um, but it, we made it, we did it. And it was actually in full production uh, a month afterwards, which nobody has ever started to plant uh, from end of construction now, you know, were there still contractors and workers on site as the project was going out the door? Absolutely. But uh, it was an exciting project, and it involved an awful lot of... Um, it really stretched our firm, uh, not the, not so much out of the comfort zone, uh, but in areas that we probably wouldn't have uh, done. So uh, we really had our hands in just about every part of the project except the refrigeration plant that, you know, ammonia is a very specialized, although we can do it, we've done it uh, since, but, uh, you know, at the time with that size of plant, that was a kind of a design build, but we had to work with them and, and provide them their infrastructure as well. So exciting project, uh, well done, uh, very productive. It's productive to this day. In fact, they've doubled the, uh, the output of that plant. Uh, been able to really expand the amount of, of work that that plant can do. And then the last one is actually uh, the Fire Utility Board Office of Consumer Advocate was probably one of the last projects that I had uh, quite a bit of influence in because it was uh, really seeking to push energy use to uh, values in Iowa that just aren't seen. Uh, you know, our goal was 28 kbtus per square foot per year, which, uh, you know, a normal building in Iowa, office building is probably closer to 70 or 80. And the building's actually, the last three years, the average of the last three years, it's performing at 17 kbtus per square foot per year. Wow. So um, it, it's lead platinum. Uh, it, it won the iCode award. It's now also won the iCode plus, which means that it, it's kind of picked out of the last 10 years of, um, in that, that's the Committee on the Environment, AIA group. Uh, it was picked out of that group of winners as something that is still uh, performing and is really showing what AIA wants to see in, in that kind of area. So very proud of that project, and we're doing quite a bit of presentations on it. Uh, I think it's a great example of integrated design, which we all need to get to and you know, really try to expand that collaboration very, very early on in the project. So it, it, so I think that, even though it's, it's about 45,000 square foot, 44,000 square foot, so it's not small, uh, not huge, um, but it, it's really performing well. So I 
I think that that was a great capstone to my career at KJ to be involved in that project and to help the um, help the firm kind of advertise the expertise that it has to pull something like that off. So that that project, um, just to kind of I don't know, focus back around and and, and maybe just you know try to educate the, the the listening audience a little bit. You're talking on that project. 28 kilobtus per square foot per year is that right or that was your goal that was the goal and most office buildings you said 75 kilobtus yeah 75 to 80 now and that's that's like you know new out of the box i mean that's you really have to focus on on getting it down to 28 oh god it was there was not any decision made on that project from day one that didn't get tested in the energy model. Uh, that goal, and that's why I don't want to say platinum's easy, but if your goal is that kind of energy, almost all your decisions start to make platinum easy. Uh, in fact, platinum wasn't even a goal early on. In fact, lead wasn't a goal early on. It was um, because of the use of this building. They wanted to be a demonstrator, and there was a, an example. In fact, that's what set the goal is. There was the um, Iowa Association of Municipal Utilities building uh, that was built probably 15 years ago, and it was performing at 28 kbtus per square foot per year. And so this new building kind of said, we want to outperform that building. Uh, and it was the lowest energy user in the state of Iowa uh, up to that point. So that's what set the goal for us. Uh, and it's a hundred percent energy star score. Um, so you know that that just happened recently. It took us we were like at ninety nine percent for two years, and then I think finally uh, the last report uh, about six months ago I got from the woman that tracks that at the state of Iowa said that it, it's now at a hundred, uh, which is pretty unprecedented. Wow, so that, that's a neat project. That is. Now, and that that when we talk about that that kilobtus, that's that's really what uh, if you if you're uh, you know talking ASHRAE, you're talking measurement. That's that's the the EUY, the the energy use Correct. index uh, or intensity, or I, you know, I, I know I heard index intensity. It, it's a couple of different things, but that that is like you take an. I mean, that's like the grade. You take that number, and that that is what you shoot for. You can you can probably you can have some hospitals that are uh, a lot. Heavy, uh, heavier users of uh, electricity, and you could easily be, you know, over a hundred, even over two hundred. Oh, three hundred. Yeah, a lot of hospitals are three hundred. So that's just again to give you some com- comparison to, you know, you know, a really heavy user to to trying to kind of. You know, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of schools I know in Ohio, um, you know, getting, you know, around that 28, you know, that's that's really kind of, you know, I've heard that number more than once to get it down that low, um, you know, just because it's a it's it's less of a um, uh, a tax to the, the system. You know, you have all right. these different school districts and they don't want to spend a lot of money to try to, you know, heat and cool their schools. So having an energy efficient schools allows them to focus the money more on the students than on the buildings themselves. Right. So now I guess, you know, going into that, obviously, sustainability was one of the uh, things that, you know, 
kind of you know later in your career at KJ that that you really got focused on. Really, how did you get? Um, you know, obviously you you've had that interest you know since your uh, solar collection days, but did you? I mean, how how did you kind of position yourself in the company and 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 uh, you know to take that leadership role? It, you know, it was organic in itself. Um, I was the branch manager of the Des Moines office for, um, you know, since it started till about 15 years ago or, or 12 years ago, something like that. And, and you know, I got to the point where I was ready to do more corporate activity. Uh, I was, um, I kind of had a three-legged stool that I ultimately were, was working for the firm on. And, and one of those was risk management contracts, um, that type of thing. And that was taking more and more of my time. Um, and I was finding that I, I wasn't as effective as a project manager as, as, as I could be uh, because of these other pressures. And so we made the decision to um, name the new uh, project manager, Andy Pelin's name, and, or a new um, branch manager. And, um, you know, I often kid Andy that was the best day of my life as my my job over to him. <laughs> and and uh, I think he's still the, the judge is out on whether that's the best day of his life or not. So, um, but he's very effective, very good uh, to this day. But, and, and so that then allowed me to focus on uh, a couple of things. And one of those was uh, commissioning. And we had just uh, kind of well before lead came out, uh, we had done one of the first commissioning jobs at the firm I did uh, out of the Des Moines office. And, you know, I really saw something that uh, the industry needed desperately uh, and that we were, we were heading into uh, the world. You know, I still remember what a, um, you know, Bakelite looks like and, and what pneumatic systems were uh, and what, how, bad they were, you know, how out of calibration they could get. And so I was desperate for uh, the, the new at the time, uh, you know, we weren't even really calling it digital control at that time. They were building automation systems and they were just monitoring. And uh, we actually did one of the first jobs in Iowa that converted a building to direct digital control very, very early on. And I was heavily involved in that project. And so controls was really one of my specialties. And so as I, I let go of that and let go of um, project management and became the principal in charge on projects uh, and was spreading myself out on more and more projects, seeing more and more projects, but in a more of an early stage, uh, we, tend, we used to call that systems concept engineer, that kind of role, helping to get projects started right uh, on the right direction and or helping them when they get into a roadblock or some kind of, of issue that needs to get resolved. Uh, so it, it really kind of was organic into allowing me to concentrate on commissioning, uh, development commissioning as a service within KJWW, uh, and then also uh, the, the risk management I was doing. And then around 2005, 2004, I think, uh, this new thing called LEAD came up, and we started to, uh, you know, and everything's new that's old, and everything that's old is new, and we've been doing energy conservation, we've been doing energy audits, we've been doing everything, and all of a sudden, now we call it green, and it's sustainable, and, and 
you know, we have different terms for it, but it really fit with most of our clientele. We do um, you know, significant amount of higher ed, and so there was deep penetration of lead into the higher ed market. Uh, actually, our commercial uh, construction, uh, there was a, a great in- uptake of lead with several of those vendors or companies uh, as we were doing uh, some significant office building work uh, around Iowa and around Chicago. And so it became natural. And then, you know, it's a complex system. It's a complex area. And we really needed somebody that was going to uh, be that central clearinghouse uh, for that information. And so that's when I uh, took on the title of Corporate Sustainability Leader. So that's that three-legged stool that I was involved in commissioning and uh, maintaining commissioning as a service and, and working to expand it and to develop it into the group that it is today. And then uh, the the idea of sustainability and DVAT resource within KJ uh, and to our clients and then the, uh, the risk management contracts. Uh, I used to say that, you know, that the commissioning and the um, sustainability is the stuff that I found fun and that, that kind of kept me going every day and the risk management I was good at, uh, but I'm not going to say that was the fun part of my job. So <laughs> now, you, you know, but go ahead. No, I just, it, it just became that. So it was kind of uh, a growing into something that I uh, obviously had passion uh, for and, and, you know, passive solar came back, but now we call it, you know, daylighting. Um, you know, there's different things that we've uh, incorporated, but again, you know, we've had some of these basic things uh, since I started this group. So, uh, but it does have a, a label now and it does have a little more depth and penetration in the market. So uh, it, it's, it's been fun to get more and more involved uh, and lead is a tool, not an end result. And, and so, but the, the idea of sustainability, uh, I'm trying to use the term high performance because uh, I think sustainability has gotten politicized, uh, even though it shouldn't, uh, but it, it's kind of become a political word. But I think we can all agree that we want our buildings to perform well, whether that's energy or an indoor environment or water or whatever, you know, in the building, uh, the use of the building, the, the way the users use the building. So mm-hmm. uh, I think everybody can support high performance. Absolutely. Now, at least from my perspective, um, I've I've noticed that if, if I mean if you if you apply your title in an architectural sense, like hey, I'm I'm the you know director of sustainability at an architecture firm. Really, what that means is that hey, you know what, I'm going to take charge of the the lead process and make sure all the credits are, are are done and make sure that you know everything is being done kind of in a in a lead esque way. Um, you also have uh, people out there that that's all they do is they are kind of the um, you know the the manager of the credits um, that they will you know take and 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 make sure that everybody's on on board and that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, but your title is, you know, lead and sustainability as part of an engineering organization. Now, how, I guess, how is that different in a engineering organization versus kind of some of the other roles? I mean, were you doing, uh, you know, this point, that point, or were you focusing on, um, you know, just specifically the, the engineering credits and how we 
we do sustainability and operations better? Uh, I think it's more the latter. Uh, again, you know, when you think about the credits or the documentation uh, that, that's required for lead, um, it, it can be a quagmire sometimes, and it can be confusing, and it can be um, difficult to uh, exactly understand what would be a successful submission. And when you're a firm of our size, um, you know, as I retired, uh, we had 115 projects that were certified, and I helped and or touched a great percentage of, of those projects. And what we were running into is that, you know, the, um, the, the, the hardcore working engineers in our firm and project managers, you know, they're working on probably three or four projects, well, one or two projects in design and, and um, you know, four or five in construction. And, you know, they aren't going to deal with lead every day. Uh, and they can't maintain a um, kind of this overall view of what's going on. So, you know, they have to document this credit for a project today, and it might be another year before they have to do that again. And so what I became was this clearinghouse and center of knowledge or center of um, kind of the, the, the wisdom so that I could keep on what was moving, what was changing, what was successful, what wasn't. Uh, I made sure that we had a lot of materials that engineers could grab uh, as far as what was successful on other projects. And, and we have a very good track record of any credit we're going after of, of achieving. Uh, we also have a pretty good understanding of what, uh, when a, a credit should be sought and when it shouldn't, uh, so that we don't get into a situation where we cost uh, a project a, a certification level, so that we try and set up uh, the expectations correctly in the beginning. So that was really in an engineering firm. Uh, we did not go out and do lead uh, consulting. Uh, we we limit our scope to. Uh, really just the engineering credits that we could affect, and that we had an involvement in. Uh, we've been approached several times to be a lead manager uh, kind of person, a uh, lead consultant, and declined it just because it's it's a little bit out, out of the wheelhouse. And, and also, we aren't experts in materials, or uh, we aren't experts in sites, uh, some of those kinds of issues. And so I didn't want to set up an expectation that, Somehow we knew a lot. Um, I mean, personally, I could actually do quite a bit of that because of the the number of charrettes I go to and the number of colleagues I work with. And, uh, you know, I have a whole cadre of people that I connect with at Greenbelt every year. Uh, you know, I'm never wanting for a dinner companion at, at Greenbelt, and so it's it's I had some of that knowledge uh, that that I could help our clients with so that I'd come into a lead charrette and I was much more active probably than the engineer that was with me that was more supporting the day-to-day -day, uh, design of the project, which is really kind of a service to our clients as well so that they were getting a little more than just the engineering. And if there was a lead consultant involved, uh, the minute we were involved, uh, almost every one of them said, now they don't. They don't worry, you know, they don't have to worry about the engineering side because KJ is, is involved. So um, I had more than one of the lead consultants we've worked with say that. So um, so that's kind of the, the difference in an engineering firm, uh, that it has a lot more to do with knowledge 
and making sure that young engineers and the engineers working on the projects have access to the information when they need it and don't have to, you know, rediscover the wheel. Uh, and, and again, I didn't, if I didn't know the answer, I knew somebody that did. Uh, so having that ability to connect people together so that, again, we don't solve the same problem five times. Um, you know, let's solve it once, and then that's what we call efficiency, uh, by making sure that that problem gets solved the other four times without as much uh, time or effort or angst. So another leg of that stool that you were talking about, obviously commissioning, um, you had kind of <laughs> glossed over the fact that, you know, before commissioning was really kind of in vogue, um, you had a project that you used commissioning on. Yeah. So I guess just describe how that came about. I mean, did I mean, did you even use the word commissioning? Uh, what was going on with that project? Sure. It, we actually did. Uh, it was when, um, it, you know, this was actually the, the very first issue of ASHRAE. Um, now it's called Guideline Zero. And at the time it was Guideline One, I think. Mm-hmm. And they changed it to zero. Um when ASHRAE first published that, uh, there was a very large project in Des Moines, and it, it had um, all the engineering and architecture was from out of state. And the uh, owner had concern. the facilities department had concerns about the function and the distance of, of all the uh, architecture and engineering that was coming out of that project. And so they had heard about commissioning, and uh, it, it actually, uh, the, the first project we did at KJ, we were a sub-consultant and mechanical contractor, which was about the worst way to contract it. But, you know, back then, nobody knew what to do, and they wanted to make it part of the, um, you know, part of the issue uh, that the contractors had to deal with. So... Uh, luckily, it was a mechanical contractor we knew well, um, had a lot of confidence in, and so we decided to take it on and kind of had to invent it as a service uh, within the, the company, using the, the ASHRAE guide as a, a way to go and just good common sense engineering. And so it was quite exciting. It was very good. Um, the, the project did not end well, and there were some major design issues, frankly, that um, I just remember being in, uh, you know, towards the end of the project, we couldn't have a meeting without 30 people and uh, myself, and every one of them had a lawyer with them. And I was the only one that didn't need to have a lawyer because I wasn't involved. I was the one talking about what the issues were. And so that really taught me a lesson that um, we discovered some issues on that project that were both... um, design issues um, by the, uh, the engineer of record, um, but many more were sensors that um, had failed that uh, did not react the way that they were expected. Uh, and and so it really taught me that this service was something that was we were starting to see more and more, especially with direct digital controls. Um, you know, with Maddox, you could actually kind of look at what the controls were and know that the components were all in place because the components were the sequence, right? Um, <laughs> you know, if you didn't have a receiver or controller, you weren't going to get any kind of integrated control. 
So you could see the black box sitting on the wall that had tubes going in and out of it. Um, with electronics, you can't see the program. Uh, it is a black box. And so we started really promoting uh, commissioning at that point, and we were fairly successful in developing with large corporate clients and our uh, hospital clients and some of those people slowly. You know, it took a while. Uh, you know, the first response has always been, I already pay for this. Uh, and and we just kept talking about it as a uh, quality assurance program, and you pay for quality assurance. That's just part of, of, of the process, and that this was a process that's needed. And you had to convince contractors um, that, you know, this helps them as well. So, uh now, so when LEED came along and made it a requirement, obviously it, it, it made it more mainstream. And it started to, with the GSA saying that it was required on all their projects, regardless of certification or, or measurement. Um, so, you know, we had some great help in at least making it mainstream that, uh, that this was a process, that it was value added, and that it had um, great effect. And so... Yeah, I've been a you know a, a proponent, and we uh, developed that service within KJWW, and then um, uh, within well, what two years ago we hired Derek DeJesus uh, to lead our commissioning group, which is eight or nine people now, and um, so that part of my role actually reduced. I became much more just a mentor to Derek, and uh, he has really taken it and run with it and is doing a fabulous job of expanding that service. And his background is more electrical side, and so he has dramatically expanded the amount of electrical commissioning we were doing, uh, which we had been doing for healthcare primarily, but now we're trying to promote uh, that deeper into other uh, aspects or other uh, different um, building groups. Now, it, it, it's interesting. Obviously, you have the mechanical background and you see the controls aspect of it, you know, it being, you know, a lot more complicated and complex and there's a lot of issues. And you just mentioned that that you're the new, uh, you know, basically the director of commissioning um, was had the electrical background. Um, do you think that it really takes that in-depth background of being, you know, involved in design to really um, promote the benefits of that? I mean, is, to be able to see, you know, where it breaks down? Uh, you know, I think it's, it, 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 it's a corporational knowledge, you know, right? So uh, we definitely, uh, with every project we commission, it builds our marketing uh, material just because we understand where things are going and what things are happening. Um, you know, people come from lots of different areas into commissioning. And um, I, I'm a little bit outspoken, uh, you know, because I know that there are actually are some engineering groups that are trying to define it as engineering. And I, I know that the latest inter, international um, uh, energy code it, it kind of makes it seem like only registered engineers can do certain activities within commissioning. Um, I'm a firm believer in experience uh, and mentorship as the way that you need to, whether you are coming from an engineered background, engineering background or a trades background or a construction background. Uh, it, it really has to do with uh, both organizational skills and then system thinking. Uh, and 
if you've got those two things, um, it doesn't necessarily matter what your basis is, but it may limit um, how much you can do. For example, Derek, um, and, and this is one of the benefits and why he wanted to come to KJWW is he wanted to have real peer reviews, not commissioning reviews. And KJ can offer that because we get mainline design engineers to do our peer reviews. And so that's something that then he can do a review for kind of the commissionability or, you know, some of those aspects. Uh, but it, it really becomes a service to the project to identify much more technical issues. Uh, and, and I, I've really found that I, I'm, you know, there are some less than good providers out there, and one of the areas I think they really fall down and try and make it up just through verbose uh, comments is the, the review and bring up stuff that really has no merit or no basis, um, but they just want to stir the pot in order to uh, appear like they are of value. And uh, whereas if you get a true peer review, um, it doesn't need to be antagonistic. It doesn't need to be confrontational. Uh, what a good peer review, peer review does will encourage appropriate communication between the engineer of record and the owner. And the owner can then make informed decisions, and there may be no change whatsoever. Um, but And we're very careful in the way we word our comments because we want to enhance the communication not become somebody that, you know, you know, trying to prove why KJ should have designed this project or, you know, um, that your engineer record is, isn't doing something right. It, it really has more to do with, have you thought about this? Is this something you want to incorporate? And, uh, you know, we've been commissioned as much as we commission, and the good firms that we've worked with uh, have dealt with us in that way, and we love working with them. So, you know, there are some very, very good commissioning firms out there and I have no problem losing to them, you know, a project because I know they're going to give the same rigor uh, uh, to the process that we would. Uh, but there are definitely some marginal providers out there. Uh, and uh, I, I, I'm not quite sure how they're going to get out of the market because sometimes you got owners that are doing it for not the right reason. You know, they're doing it to get the point not, uh, or the two point, but not doing it really for the end result, which is a building that works and operates uh, the way it was intended. Right. You can do a lot of things on paper, but it doesn't mean that they actually work. Exactly. So now I guess, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, um, you know, I've basically my, you know, my background in commissioning, um, I see, you know, I've seen a lot of engineering organizations get into the field um, as a, a, a like a, a different uh, avenue of uh, revenue, um, they see that as a different revenue source, not necessarily understanding, and it, and it really takes a mindset uh, when you start commissioning to really kind of grasp that you're doing this for the owner. It's not an ego thing. It's it's you're trying to uh, you know make it a win-win project for everybody. So exactly. I, I guess what. I guess, what have you seen and what have you done to make sure that, you know, you kind of, you know, understand that and, and you, you're picking people that, uh, that are, that are helping that process out? Well, you know, a lot has to do with attitude. Uh, and, 
you know, we've had several people do commissioning, and luckily it's a, a case of being able to get some younger engineers involved, uh, and, you know, they've done some project management, they've done design, um, they've shown an interest in controls maybe, uh, and then we start to see what are their you know, personal interpersonal skills uh, and their thought process. And, and luckily we can uh, have them assist on projects. And, you know, with the, the, the size of firm we are, we get to try out people before they get uh, assigned to the team. So, you know, just because you do a project doesn't mean you're part of uh, the commissioning group. So, we have the luxury of being able to work with them before we are necessarily putting them in front of a client uh, as the agent, you know, um, or as the authority. Mm-hmm. And we, we we're pretty clear in the way the authority is the one in charge, prime uh, uh, contact to the owner, and then uh, they will have commissioning agents helping them uh, that might do you know specific testing or assistance with forms and that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit like the project manager design engineer relationship. Uh, and so it, it, that really helps us, you know, um, we can find that right personality, but you're absolutely right that it, it takes uh, an attitude of uh, collaboration. And, you know, I think the bad providers uh, are the marginal providers don't view their role. They're, they view their role as the more, tension and angst they can create in the, in the name of, I'm just trying to make it work, um, that seems to be what rewards them. And I'd rather in the project where the engineer of record is thanking the commissioning agent and vice versa. And uh, that's the way we try to deal with uh, the commissioning agents that do our work. And so, you know, it's the old golden rule, treat other people like you'd like to be treated yourself, correct? So, um, that's really, so it's through training, mentorship, uh, and, and making sure you select the right people. And we've had a couple of people we've hired into the group and some have worked, some haven't. And I think we try to uh, career recommend people, uh, in, in that correct way. So, uh, you know, try and do that in the first six months instead of let it linger kind of thing. So, mm-hmm coach somebody into a different role uh, in the industry, maybe. Uh, and we haven't had a lot of that, but we've had some. And, uh, it, it, it doesn't really, you know, it's not that it's coming from an engineering background. Right now, I'd say our the, the group is, and again, it's, maybe it's one of our differentiators as well. It is engineering heavy. Um, we have some non-engineers in that group. Derek's not an engineer, and leads the group uh, very, very effectively. So we are going to hire more of those uh, as we see them become available, Um, but we are still probably more an engineer-centric commissioning effort than not. Uh, But that's a little more just because we are coming from from that background. And you you look at SSRCX, um, they're kind of the same way. Uh, they're, They're kind of one of the People I like to measure KJ against, uh, they've commissioned us several times. We haven't gotten to return the favor yet. We, <laughs> we, we're still looking for that project, but um, work with them well, uh, like them. Uh, I think they do a good job. Uh, you know, we don't lose to them on fee. We lo- lose to them on experience, which is the right way. Um, 
you know, or, or familiarity with a building type. So, uh, you know, those are the kinds of firms that I've dealt with. But I've, I've seen some other firms that, that aren't that way, um, aren't necessarily very um, coming from the engineering, and they do a great job as well. Um, we've done a um, fair amount of work with EEI out of uh, uh, Kansas, or out of uh, Missouri. And um, they're probably 50-50 engineering versus uh, some other trade or uh, testing and balancing. And I was, I was very pleased uh, with their work. I thought they did a good job of uh, encouraging collaboration and uh, encouraging, uh, you know, a good project outcome. So. Now, obviously, <laughs> name-dropping, SSRCX, that's a, a Smith, Seckman, and Reed uh, commissioning? Yeah. And EEI yeah. was that uh, Engineering Economics Incorporated, I think. Okay, all right. Just in case you didn't catch that the first time, I didn't want to throw you know whiz an acronym by and uh, right. not have not have people you know catch that. Um, so obviously, commissioning big impact areas. What and and commissioning agents in in general are big on you know what are some of the the, the lessons learned and, and so i guess what can you tell us about uh, some some lessons learned that you 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 know you can share wow that could be a whole other it could um, it, it it could be podcast <laughs> um i i would say that um you know the idea of sequences um the clearer the sequence and it's not always length. Uh, I, I'm not saying that sequences should be long, but if I've learned a lesson, it's that uh, having a well-written sequence that's thought through and really makes it go well, because you're not leaving the temperature control programming to their imagination. Uh, and or what they've done before. Mm -hmm. the, the more specific that that sequence is, the easier both our jobs are as the commissioning agent and as the programmer. And that doesn't mean they don't still program what they thought it should be uh, instead of what the engineer did, but um, it's very easy to then lay out what the functional test is, how to do it, you know, what can you do that you don't have to wait for season change? You know, all those different aspects. Um, and yet I still see an awful lot of sequences that are a paragraph. They're not well thought out, and they really leave a lot to the temperature control contractor. And frankly, I think it gets into the hands of the commissioning agent to kind of figure out what was in the engineer of record's head uh, to, to come up with what that solution is. So I, I guess that's kind of a broad lesson. Um, the other is that, uh, you know, it is a round robin of communication. And so I really try to be very careful in how I word the action law uh, or how our, our team, I don't want to get into a lot of blaming. Uh, when you think about that, you know, sometimes that, Sequence is written by another engineer within a firm. So, you know, the engineer of records busy designing, sizing, laying out, uh, working with CAD, and then uh, somebody is actually trying to take what's in his head and, and put it into, you know, the sequence, and then it gets to the um, 
basically the marketing rep side of a, a temperature control company to, that just really worries about what, what the dollars are. And then it gets to the person that's supposed to preload all the programs. And then, you know, the last guy that gets to cover it is the, 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 the poor dude installing stuff and actually uploading the programming. So there's an awful lot of changes of information uh, from each hand and each ear uh, and mouth in that process. And so often it really is just uh, a miscommunication and it's usually easily um, resolved. And if you, you know, handle it correctly, um, you can be seen as value to that programmer. And, uh, in, you know, encouraging them to, you know what, come and let me do a couple of uh, TAB boxes uh, after you've done the first couple, you know, and, uh, and, and if you identify things, um, you know, they haven't invested a lot of time yet. And so kind of, kind of working with them and knowing what their problems are and how you might help them do their job better actually helps you do your job better. And so I, we, we encourage that quite a bit. Um, the, the other thing is the idea of being able to um, design tests. Um, I wish I could claim I came up with it, but, you know, uh, I had all these artificial ways to test filter signals, and uh, and then I can't remember who actually came up with it, but um, somebody in the group came up to just throwing cardboard on the, uh, uh, the filters, and I thought, duh, that's just the the easiest thing I've ever seen, you know, um, and, and, you know, just load up the filters and it, you know, it, 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 it's a way to do the test without, you know, changing too many variables other than the variable that you really want it to, to change. So designing ways to do that without, uh, so that you raise a level of confidence without having to, um, be there for just that situation. Uh, I think that's the real challenge of, and maybe that's the, quote, engineering, unquote, that a commissioning agent does, is designing the functional tests. Uh, and, and I had a lot of fun doing that when I, when I was doing that. So I know that that's still the, one of the challenges that, that happens there. So. Very cool. So obviously you've, you've started a new chapter in your life. You've, you've retired from KJWW, and you go, hey, you know what? Um, how about I start a new firm? Tell me a little bit about that decision of starting integrated design and energy advisors. Sure. So I, I, again, I, I have, uh, KJ has given me the opportunity to create a fairly unique voice. Uh, and this working with so many architects on so many projects related to sustainability is connected to a, a much broader audience than uh, would typically be available to an engineering firm. And we've also been very, very careful at the firm at not, and, and I'd like to say it's you know foresight, but it's actually from uh, unfortunate experience that every time we do a service that's kind of outside the wheelhouse of the structural mechanical electrical technology area, if it's not very directly um, connected, we haven't been successful. And so we have actively resisted things like uh, uh, doing lead consulting or 
uh, facilitation of uh, assurance, those types of things, even though I've assisted uh, over the years. So I've been able to create uh, more skills in engagement and facilitation uh, and uh, education. I do quite a bit of presentations and, and work with, uh, with young engineers and practitioners. And I really felt that it was time to, um, you know, I've been in this industry now well over 30 years and 25 with KJ, and it just seemed like I have a broader voice now. I can affect projects in a, in a different way that isn't really within the core uh, of what KJWW provides. So it's going to be really going out and expanding what I can do, and I'd like to be focused on helping projects start earlier. I'm in the middle of branding and uh, coming up with some of that type, but I've been playing with the term, you know, to start better, uh, reach higher, and finish stronger as a way to encapsulate what I hope to do with projects through the idea of integrated design. And the IUB building taught me that if you set goals early and you measure against those goals at every single decision point, and that everybody understands clearly what those goals are, you can really exceed expectations. And so often we run into the fact that we didn't know something because we maybe didn't ask the right question. So I hope to help design teams through a facilitation early on in the project to ask all the right questions and then document it in the most underused uh, risk management tool that exists in our industry, and that's the owner's project requirements, the poor, lowly OPR that never gets done until the end of the project or gets done by the commissioning agent who is absolutely the wrong person to do the OPR, but it's got to get done and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd like that to become an active tool, uh, and I call it risk management because anytime you enhance communication, uh, between the design team and the owner, uh, you don't get, um, you know, failed expectations. And uh, my other risk management hat is that claims start with failed expectations. Uh, and maybe it's not even an expectation you knew existed. So, so that's really what I'm hoping to do. And I have lots of different ways that I do that and can bring that to team. So I'm really hoping to get more involved early in the project and to help them move forward and create that integrated team uh, and maybe help them, you know, at, at different thresholds within the project, that type of thing. So I'm um, more education, except now I guess instead of giving it away, I'm hoping you get paid for it. Um, <laughs> some of those kinds of things. So, you know, monetizing some of the things that my clients over the years have been used to getting because of KJ uh, that's going to be my biggest um, uh, you know, problem out there is uh, doing that. That sounds very exciting. So um, we're getting up there uh, as far as uh, time goes, and I, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but uh, do you have uh, any last words that you, you want to add? No, I just, uh, um, it's been a wonderful career. Um, you know, the KJWW experience was, was fabulous. I'm still their number one fan. Uh, I'm hoping to, I was kidding them that I hope they're a sub-consultant to me. 
um, and they're all worried about the contract I'm going to ask them to sign. Uh, <laughs> it's because I know uh, how to write a contract. So uh, I, I'm really excited about looking at a different, looking at projects much more broadly and being, you know, much more that advocate for the owner, uh, but also an advocate for the design team because it's really this communication that needs to be improved and the creative tension needs to be managed. And I'm not sure all owners understand that and uh, kind of maybe expect the architect to manage that when they need to be a little more involved to make sure that it comes to their best uh, best results. So thanks for the opportunity, and it's been fun to talk. So if anybody wanted to learn more about you or your company, what would be the best way to get a hold of you? Um, right now, it'd be through LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, I, I've got a fairly active LinkedIn presence and uh, Twitter. So LinkedIn, you know, just look for Scott Bowman uh, and, uh, uh, and, and IDEA, you know, Integrated uh, Design Energy Advisors. And then also I've got a Twitter feed that uh, uh, we could probably do another podcast about, which is Scott B. Lego. And yes, I am heavily involved in Lego and, it will be one of the tools I use within uh, the facilitation uh, keynote that I hope to do. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, an adult fan of Lego and AFOL. And uh, so you'll see very interesting. If you follow that Twitter feed, you get to see stuff about sustainability, uh, about engineering, about motorsports. I work for a pro team and I'm a steward for sports car racing and Lego. So I think I might win on the diverse That sounds fantastic. Well, Scott, I'd really appreciate you uh, being on the show and sharing all these uh, great tidbits. And uh, I hope people <laughs> took notes, got things down. Um, I will put links uh, in the show notes over at uh, buildingx.co about uh, things we talked about. And uh, yeah, thanks for being on the show. All right. Thanks, Matt. All right. And we're back. Thanks again to our guest, Scott Bowman. Um, really appreciate uh, him taking the time um, to kind of uh, take us through, you know, quite a bit of things. Um, and I, you know, I, I really, I really like, you know, what he had to say. Uh, a couple of things, you know, lately, um, and you know, you've noticed from uh, one of the previous pod podcasts about uh, mechanical engineering and, and things like that, uh, where I talked about. Uh, you know, uh, what I learned at, at, the, at the university or at university, if you're in, in Canada, um, is, you know, it's, it's just the idea of having different paths to go and get into this industry. And, and you don't necessarily have to spend, you know, Boku bucks, um, a lot of money to, to be able to, uh, you know, participate everybody, you know, there's different ways to get into the industry. And I like that, uh, his solution, which, you know, I mean, frankly, I'm considering, you know, that recommendation for, for my kids, um, to say, Hey, you know what, you may not necessarily have to go to, uh, you know, spend four or five years at a university, at a college to, uh, to get a degree. Um, you might be able to kind of, uh, do part of it, uh, in a, uh, uh, a community college setting, um, and then transfer those credits, uh, and get your degree that way. It's a lot more, uh, palatable to the pocketbook. You know, I've, I've, I've paid out the notes through my, uh, for my, uh, tuition. Um, but, 
you know, I want to be able to, you know, give them the uh, that advantage as well, just to kind of another way of doing things smarter. And I think that him doing that way back when is is is, you know, I think it was a little bit about necessity, but I think, it, you know, it's, it's brilliant and it's a lesson that, that we need to carry forward uh, to today. Um, thanks again for listening. Uh, I really appreciate each and every one of you. Um, if you have any interest, uh, I'm doing a couple different things. Uh, I have reading lists that I'm, I'm publishing on a monthly basis, also sending out some notices. I do that through my newsletter. So if you go to buildingx.co and sign up for the newsletter there, uh, you will get some good information. Um, also, it'll, it'll uh, alert you if you're not uh, on iTunes, in iTunes, um, when the new shows come out, uh, what that is, uh, and, and things, articles that I find uh, very very interesting. So sign up for that. Uh, if you like the episode, pass it along. Uh, let people know. Uh, tweet about it. You know, email it. Whatever you like to do. Whatever you're into. Just uh, distribute it. That that would be great. If you want to leave me a comment on iTunes, go ahead and do that. Uh, I'd really appreciate that as well. Uh, each and every one of those is is a is a gem to me. So I. Uh, I really appreciate that, and thank you for those who have done it. Uh, email me, matt at buildingx.co, on Twitter, at buildingx, or uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me there as well, and obviously you can connect with me, um, and you'll meet uh, a lot of great people there. So, cutting this short, short as in long, and so it's an <laughs> hour and 20 minutes. Uh, thank you for everybody. You know, it's important to, uh, to build your knowledge. So remember, everybody, know what you build and share what you know. 